Welcome to an episode of Love Me, the podcast. I am your host, Hannah Tittle, and this is my self-love journey. I believe that loving yourself should be easy. It should be second nature, but I know firsthand that it isn't. Together on this podcast, or better yet, on this journey, we will be learning about what self-love really means, what it means to different women of different ages and in different stages in their lives, and we'll be learning what we can do to make it easy, to make it so that it is second nature. Each episode, I will be having conversations with badass women, with coaches, gurus, and mentors, and together with their help, we can learn how and what we can do to make loving ourselves effortless, and best of all, to make it so that we truly, authentically love ourselves. Hello, hello. Welcome to episode number 10. Very, very exciting to officially be in the double digits. Somehow feels extra real. (laughs) Not that the last nine episodes haven't been real. Um, It still blows my mind how many strangers are listening. The fact that 33 countries around the world are listening to my voice. It's incredibly cool. And um, I'm, as always, so grateful for all of you for tuning in. And most of all, I just really hope that you guys are taking something away from this, whether it be a laugh or you're learning something new or a positive thought or you're excited to try a new technique just to be your happiest and healthiest self because that's what this is all about. I want to dive right into today's episode because I'm very excited about it, as I am with all of them. Today I'm talking to Tiffany Toombs. And she is a, and she is a coach, an author, and an overall boss, really. (laughs) She has an incredible list of her education. She's got an amazing story and she's, she's very knowledgeable and powerful. And, um, I know I was able to learn a lot from her in just the short interview that we did. Today's topic is all about the mind, which for me, I just think is incredibly fascinating and something that I've really been wanting to learn more about as of recently. The idea that we all have our own reality and our own beliefs and our own fears and our own comfort zones, it's incredibly interesting and strange and weird and cool all at the same time. And I really wanted to learn more about that. I wanted to learn why we develop these different beliefs and how we develop them and kind of what age we do. So with her help, she helps to explain that and we get an idea of why it is we think the way that we do. And she also reminds us that though it's incredibly easy to start thinking this way, uh, we have the power to change that through gratitude and affirmations and just by working through it, you know? So that's very reassuring. (laughs) So without further ado, I want to launch straight into my conversation with the wonderful Tiffany Toombs. So hi, good morning. Thank you so, 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 so much for coming and joining me today. I'm literally so excited to speak to you. I'm excited too. I, I'm wondering if you're cool, if we, um, to start things off, I'd love to just get like a little bit of a background about yourself and see how it is that you ended up to be in this place, you know, like how you became to be a coach and and, um, you know, got the courage to start reminding people to go after what it is they want. Absolutely. So I have been, quote unquote, a coach, like since I was 14. Um, but I started out in health and fitness. So I 
was obsessed with health and fitness my entire life. Like my mom jokes around about how when I was like five, I used to run stairs until I was so exhausted I couldn't even move. And would like back then with the level of knowledge that I had, I would, you know, go to the grocery store every month and get like the newest, um, the newest editions of like shape magazine and oxygen and all of those like health and fitness magazines. And I'd read all the articles and I'd cut out all the exercise, um, how to's. And I had like this little binder that was like my exercise Bible. And, um, even back then (laughs) I was a little bit of an overachiever, but even back then I, um, had it like broken down into triceps and biceps and, and like lower body and, you know, here's multi joint movements and, you know, here's yoga. So I had this like little Bible that everything was in like its plastic sleeve. And, and really back then my goal when I started working in fitness and in sports when I was 14 was to help other people reach their goals and to feel more comfortable in their skin, which essentially is what I still do. I just use different techniques now. Um, so when I was 14, I started working with local sports teams doing their fitness training. And then I kind of moved into the therapy side from there, dealing with injuries, um, doing massage pre and post game, taping ankles. And I would take whatever courses or read whatever books I could back then. And I went to university for that. And then once I graduated from college, I felt pulled to go to Australia. I didn't really know why. Nobody in my family had really ever traveled before, but I was like, I just, this is a place I need to go. And now I know. Don't worry. I went there after high school. I get it. Yeah. (laughs) And uh, I know now that my soul was basically pulling me there to completely break me apart so that I could be put back together better. Um, Wow. So while I was there, I actually was working for a baseball team is how I set it all up. I would be their therapist for free and they'd give me a place to stay for free. And my plan was to do that just for six months, like stay for the baseball season, do a little bit of traveling, then leave, come back home, see my family real quick, and then go back and do the same thing all over again in New Zealand and then do the same thing all over again in Europe. Um, Australia caught me though. And um, they have baseball year round down there. So the winter team asked me to stay. And then the gym that I was working at wanted to sponsor me. They didn't want to let me go. And so, and then this guy that I knew had asked me out. So it was kind of like the perfect storm collaborated to keep me there. And after three years of dating this person, um, just like literally maybe a month after our, our um, three year anniversary, I found out that I was pregnant. And on the same day, found out that he had a girlfriend in another state. And he was actually, at the time, he was away with her, but told me that he was away at a job interview so that he could provide a better life for me. He'd been telling our friends and family that he was saving for a ring and about to propose. And then he's got a girlfriend in another state. So my life kind of fell apart. And at that point in time, in our relationship, I had been the breadwinner. So I was still living paycheck to paycheck. I couldn't afford to run back home to Canada. A trans-Pacific flight is not always cheap, especially last minute. So I, um, I had to deal with this breakup by myself. And it was the first time really that I wasn't 
able to run back to like the cocoon of my mom's love. So um, in the weeks that kind of followed, I did what I think a lot of people in my situation would do and what I've seen a lot of other people do. Um, And that was I attempted to fix things with him. And I was like, look, if you just admit to me what you've done and we'll go to counseling and we can work this out. And it's really interesting that that was my kind of go-to tactic because before then, when any of my friends had somebody, you know, their boyfriends cheat on them or whatever, I was like, no, get rid of that loser. Like, how dare you go back to him? And I was so judgmental. (laughs) And then here I am like doing the thing that I've judged so many other people for, which is really how it always happens. Um, So through that process came more lies. Um, It turns out that he was a compulsive liar and like would lie just for the sake of lying. Like would say I had the best bacon and eggs for breakfast when they hadn't even, when he hadn't even eaten. So um, my life just kind of kept unraveling. And when I thought I'd hit rock bottom, then I fell to a whole new low. And then I ended up um, for two weeks after the, everything kind of came to light. I couldn't eat or sleep for two weeks. Every time I attempted to eat, I felt sick, which probably was also because of the pregnancy. Um, and I just, I couldn't sleep. I just laid there awake at night and stared at, I just kind of stared at a wall like 24 seven as all this stuff is coming out. And so my body um, just said, you know, this, this isn't the time to have a baby which I'm grateful for now. I wouldn't have wanted to be tied to a compulsive liar for for my entire life through a child, but um, I had a miscarriage and then I sunk to an even lower low that I didn't even know was possible. And I also couldn't fully understand it. I I was so embarrassed about the cheating and about being that person that got cheated on that I actually didn't tell anybody other than him about the pregnancy. And so then I didn't tell anybody else about the miscarriage. And so it was something I completely went through alone in a swamp of shame and embarrassment and anger and just confusion. Because before I even got pregnant, I my kind of running joke was that it was my worst nightmare because I was not at all ready to have a kid. And then all of a sudden I'm pregnant and I have like this like feeling of excitement and like, I'm going to be a mom and my body's growing this tiny human and like excited about it. And like then to lose it and have this like overwhelming grief and confusion about, well, I like, this isn't even something I was ready for. So why am I so upset about it? So not to mention you're doing that all alone, which is horrifying. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I can only imagine, I mean, I was only, would have only been like a couple of weeks or maybe six weeks along. Um, so I can't even imagine what women who have a miscarriage much later in their pregnancy go through. But it was just this point of like all this emotional pain just coming up and I didn't know how to deal with it. So I kind of sunk into solitude and spent a lot of time alone with my dog. Um, at one point I was suicidal. I, I remember standing on a corner in downtown Melbourne. And I was just like, I just, I, I don't think I can keep living with this pain. Like, I just, I don't know how to do this. And I saw a cab coming and I was like, you know, I could make this look like an accident really easily. Just like one missed time step and, and I get hit by a cab. So 
Um, I mentally committed to taking that step. And then when the time came to take it, call it divine intervention or whatever, my feet would not move. They were like rooted, cemented to the ground. So as the cab passed, it kind of took the air out of my lungs with it. And I realized that I needed to make some changes that I needed to, there was some stuff from my past I needed to address. I was actually abused by my stepmom, who was a domestic violence survivor. And I'd always just swept that under the rug. And that had been really my MO for my entire life was just sweeping things under the rug. So that kind of started my journey of looking at my emotions, understanding them, personal growth. I found a lot of things not to do. Um, I went to counseling. I went to a therapist and a couple sessions and a couple thousand dollars later just found like, you know, I'm not getting any tools to deal with it. Like we're talking about it, but it's not actually it's, it's only bringing all this stuff that I've pressed so far surface. down to the surface. And then my therapist was like, well, today was your last session. Don't you feel so much better now? And I was like, no. <laughs> so she was like, you just need to keep talking about it. You know, like go, go home and tell your mom about what your stepmom did to you. And I mean, my mom's somebody that's battled with depression and anxiety her entire life. So I was like, I, I don't want to put this on her. Like, I know that this is going to just send her into a guilt storm of how did I not know that this was happening? So, and then, so I started going to personal development seminars and events, the kinds with like loud music and lots of dancing and clapping and hugging and felt really great when I was there. And then when I left, I was like, I don't really have any tools to deal with real life. Hired a couple coaches who told me to just start telling myself I loved me. They didn't mention that like, it's not just, saying the words that matter but how you say the words right. so I'm here every day like I love you I love you <laughs> and I was like after six months I was like this isn't working I need something different so that kind of brought me to NLP which was the first time that I didn't have somebody tell me you need to stop focusing on the past and what's happened you can't change that and just focus on your future because that's really what I'd done my entire life and I think that's right. a real dangerous concept that exists in the coaching industry is just don't think about your past anymore. The truth is like we may not be able to go back in a time machine and stop the abuse from happening. What we can do though is we can rewrite our past by changing how we feel about it. And so that has been the biggest part of my journey and the biggest aha moment of healing is that you know the abuse didn't happen because I wasn't good enough. It happened because she hadn't dealt with her stuff. The cheating from multiple ex-boyfriends through my life didn't happen because I wasn't good enough. That was their stuff. And I just happened to take it on. And so that's what I'm most passionate about helping people with today. And that's kind of brought me to where I am today is experiencing such a massive shift and change in my life that I'm like, you know, I, I would be doing a disservice to the world if I didn't share this. That's incredible. I mean, just to have the strength to go through that on your own and like to come forward is amazing. But now to be able to spread that gift and the knowledge is just amazing. So we're lucky for to have people like you in the world for sure. Thank you. Um, for anyone listening that doesn't know, can you explain what NLP is? Yeah. So NLP is neuro linguistic programming is what it stands for. 
It is what Tony Robbins is trained in. He's probably the most famous person that uses it. Um, And it's really a study of how our brain is wired, how our emotions, our limiting beliefs, and our thoughts play into that wiring, and then how the words that we use when we communicate to ourselves through thought, through that inner dialogue, and when we communicate to others creates pathways in the brain that then ultimately lead to a behavior, an action habit. So what I focus mostly on with people is that when people want to make a change in their life, they typically will focus on the behavior, right? I'm overweight, so I need to start eating better and or going to the gym more. I'm smoking, I need to stop. I'm drinking too much, I need to stop. I am in debt, I need to save more money. The the reason why people don't often find long-lasting change is because they don't deal with the belief system that has created the behavior in the first place. So they are attempting to rewire the brain the hardest way possible um, by acting against what has become a reflex-like behavior for them. So like comfort eating, for example, when you get stressed out, because you've done that so many, or because somebody has done that so many times in their life, that becomes a reflex-like behavior in their brain. It becomes a very entrenched, deep pathway. And so we don't even require conscious thought to go into that pattern of behavior. If we want to change that, the easiest way to change that is to deal with the belief system that caused the comfort eating in the first place. The hardest way to change it is to use willpower and self-discipline. And that's why people talk about, you know, just having to harden up or toughen up. Like, it's actually the hardest way possible to make a change by just focusing on the behavior. Because it's kind of like if you're weeding your garden, taking your garden shears and just cutting the weed where the stem meets the soil. Like, the garden's going to look good for a day or two, but the weed is still there. And so it will come back. So when I first started mindset coaching, I was actually more of a, an accountability coach. And I actually, at one point was convinced that I was not meant to be a mindset coach or a life coach and that I hated it because I found that it created so much codependency. Like, yeah, I can get you to your goal. I can create the plan and push you through it and use guilt and shame and whatever else to make sure that you reach that goal. Or I can help you get rid of the belief system. But what so many coaching programs teach and why what is different about NLP and what I love about it is that it doesn't create the codependency. We actually rewire somebody's brain so that their behavior completely changes. Because when I was that accountability coach, the other thing that I found was, you know, let's say, Hannah, you come to me and you're like, I'm procrastinating in my business. I'm, I'm not posting on social media. I can push you through that, right? But what I found was if maybe you got into a habit in your business, but then that procrastination moved to a different area of your life. So maybe you stop paying your bills on time or you procrastinate having a date night with your significant other or you procrastinate going to the gym. So until we deal with the belief system, the behavior never truly disappears. It just shapeshifts. And that's why it's so important that we rewire the brain from the deepest level. We pull that weed out from the root so that life and behavior just changes naturally. That is, that's so interesting to me. 
um, like I mentioned yesterday when I was messaging you, I just, I don't know what it is lately. I think maybe just uh, while I'm on this journey, I'm discovering that so much of what I thought was, you know, I don't want to say wrong with me, but like things that I didn't like about myself or whatever I've realized are all things that I have made up in my own head. Like not once has anyone actually said any of these things to me. And I just find it so interesting that we can be so cruel to ourselves and and limit ourselves so much. Um, Yeah. Do you, I don't know if you would have an answer for this, but I'm curious, like, where do you find that most often this starts? Like, is it, um, you know, is it societal norms? Is it somebody usually that influences us to think this way? Because I'd really like to believe that we're not born, you know, this way, being wanting to be cruel to ourselves and such. So that's a great question. The bulk of the belief systems that we have as adults, both good and bad, were embedded in our mind between the ages of zero and seven. So there's a couple important things to know about the ages of zero to seven. We are essentially a sponge to our environment because we're we're basically like a blank canvas and we take in so much information from our external surroundings. We we take in like two million pieces of information per second. That's how much info we take Gosh. in. That's insane. And so we use that to really start painting on this canvas and to create the belief systems of what life is. Now, during that time, we are very self-referential, which basically means that everything happens because of us, right? We don't have the ability to say, oh, you're being mean to me because it has something to do with you. Right. Everything that happens happens because of me. So this is where we typically see like kids whose parents get divorced between zero and seven blame themselves. Oh, it's my fault. Um, I've even seen, I worked with a kid who between the ages of zero and seven saw a car accident happen and thought it was their fault. Um, So, you know, for me, my, my abuse happened between zero and seven. So it was like, well, it's my fault. The other thing about between zero and seven is that we believe that our parents wouldn't lie to us. So when my stepmom, who was in that position of authority, that maternal figure, was telling me all this stuff about how I was useless or blah, 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 then I take that on to be true because they, won't, they wouldn't lie to me, right? We, we don't have an understanding at that age that adults lie or that adults have a skewed perception. I mean, most Adults think that there is one reality when, in fact, we each have our own reality, which is filtered by our belief systems, our emotions, and our experiences. And so we don't see the world as it is. We see the world as we are. And so when an adult tells us something between the ages of zero and seven, we just take it to be true. Right. Then we have no understanding really of how the world works. We have no ability to look at something and say, you know, like, let, let's go to an extreme. If we go to an extreme, like you have a parent who is racist or you live in an area with, you know, very closed-minded thinking, you don't know any different because that's what you've been raised with. So it's absolutely true that we are born with love and we are taught to hate 
but it's not it's not necessarily how everyone thinks the teaching happens. It, it's not, you know, right. oh, you have to not like this person because they have a different skin color or they go to a different church or, you know, they are a different gender or whatever. We don't have to specifically say the words. And the biggest thing, the biggest way that kids learn is by what we do and not what we say. So if you say to a kid, don't smoke, it's bad, and then you pick up a cigarette and light it, you've just negated everything that you've just said and you've embedded that it's okay to smoke. Otherwise, why would you be doing it? So we have to be so aware of what we say, especially to kids, because they they just they that becomes the basis of their belief systems. Even when um with little kids, when they see family members and a family member is like, hey, give me a hug. And the kid's kind of like shy and hiding behind mom or dad. And then the mom and dad like kind of pushes them and forces them to go and give them a hug. That takes away like those physical boundaries. And studies have actually shown that those people are more likely or, or sorry, less likely to say something at an older age if somebody starts to sexually abuse them. So it's actually better to and you know I I tell people this if I'm like hey can I have a hug to a little kid and they're like kind of hiding and their parent says no go hug them I'm like no it's okay I don't want her to do anything or him to do anything that they don't feel comfortable doing and so it's actually important that we reinforce from a young age those boundaries but also that the parent has boundaries because if we again tell the kid to have boundaries you don't have to do anything that you don't want to and then we don't demonstrate that behavior you know, they're just going to be like, why would I listen to you? It, it, one of the most powerful memes that I saw recently was if you tell your kid that they can be anything and then you go to a job that you hate every day, you're lying to them. And I was just like, it's so true. And people do it every day. Like you can do whatever you want, dream big. And then they see you like stuck in this life or they see their parents stuck in this life that they hate. And it's like, well, clearly I can't be anything that I want. Yeah, that's actually very powerful because, I mean, I, I'm very lucky. I didn't have, you know, growing up, my parents are still together. You know, I wasn't, didn't go through abuse and stuff, but I still have a lot of limiting beliefs. And I wonder if it's because of things sort of along the lines of that, you know, being told that I can do anything and, you know, the world's my oyster or whatever, but then watching my parents, you know, not fully living out their dreams and maybe coming home and complaining about work one day. Or, you know, kind of, I don't know, not being like the fairy tale couple and, and maybe moaning about each other one day. I'm like, oh, well, I'll never have that kind of, you know, love. I wonder, that's really interesting. I would never have thought that that's kind of where you can pick things up, even when they're not like driven into you. Yeah, absolutely. Like the unconscious mind is incredibly suggestive. And so it actually responds better to suggestion than it does to a command. And so if, you know, even if your mom, for example, made comments about her weight, then you grow up believing or it's instilled from you young that, you know, you have to complain about your weight. That's what we do. Um, What I often see is if a woman had a mom who was like, the people pleaser who did everything for everybody and put all her own needs last, the woman will become, will grow up 
and associate that behavior of people pleasing and martyrdom to what the identity of a mother is. And the same thing with the dad. If the dad is an authoritarian and never really present uh, emotionally or physically, you know, is always working, whatever. I've had men come to me and they're like, well, I don't want to have kids because I don't want to be like my dad. And they associate their dad's behavior with being a dad, with the identity of being a dad. And it's interesting because, you know, there's this societal belief of, well, once you get married, you stop having sex. That actually comes from like the 1950s parents where you had two people who got married like straight out of high school, um, you know, didn't really know who they were, didn't really know what love was. It was like that initial like kind of puppy love or they got married because he was a good provider, father, whatever, and she would make a good housewife. And so you have these two people who get married, they have kids super young, like before the age of 25, and then they hit their mid-20s, start to figure out who they are and what they truly want in life, and come to realize that they don't actually love each other or that their goals or their vision for life are not really the same. The man may, you know, be getting stressed out or tired of being the only one working, whatever it is. So he comes home. And he suppresses his feelings by drinking and smoking and watching TV. And she does the same thing and cleans and, you know, has to be the perfectionist, the leave it to beaver mom to feel good enough. They don't sleep in the same room. They never show affection. And so their kids grow up thinking that that's what a marriage looks like. Even if they have friends whose parents are like super loving or whatever, that's not how that's not the identity that they give marriage. They give marriage the identity of arguments every night, drinking, smoking, no affection, not sleeping in the same bed. And so then people are like, well, I don't really want to get married because I don't want a relationship like that. So we have to, like, I tell people all the time, don't stay together for the kids. It's the worst thing that you can do because you're teaching them what love and marriage looks like. And then, you know, down the road, they're going to have to come spend thousands of dollars with me to rewire all of that. You're better off to show them that if you're unhappy in a situation, you can make a change. Otherwise, you know, they may not stay in a relationship that they're unhappy in, but they may. They may stay in an abusive relationship because that's what was modeled for them. Or they may find a job that they hate and then they just believe that they have to stay there. So. Just because we are taught something in one area of life doesn't mean that the unconscious mind only applies it to that area. It kind of applies it to all areas of life. And so, yeah, it's what's modeled for us that is most suggestible to the unconscious mind. And so everything that that happens to us in our life, we just think is normal. Like when I first started going to see the therapist, and probably the best thing that I got out of my therapy sessions was my therapist said, so you realize you've been abused. And I was like, no. And she was like, she was like, well, what would you call it? And I was like, well, that's just what happened. Like that was just my childhood. And she said, okay, so if somebody else, let's say some other random, like three to six year old child got locked in closets and burned with curling irons and 
driven to the outskirts of the city and told to get out and left for dead on the side of the road, what would you call that? And I was like, abuse. (laughs) She was like, so, so why is it different for them and not for you? And so it's important that people realize like this, whatever we experience, we tend to think is normal, even if we know it's not. And that's why so few people report sexual abuse and sexual trauma is because they either blame themselves or they believe the perpetrator who tells them that it's their fault or they just believe that it's normal that well this is this is just what happens even if they know it's wrong they don't equate wrong to not normal and so that that's why I'm like so passionate about helping people heal traumas because people will come through things and be like oh yeah, that probably should have never happened. And I'm not responsible for that person, you know, raping me or molesting me or whatever it was like, or even doesn't even have to be that extreme. I'm not responsible for that person bullying me on the playground or, you know, that boyfriend cheating on me or, you know, subtly putting me down. And that's, that's so powerful though, because if you, if you really believe that that's, all there is, or you you feel that maybe it isn't right and it shouldn't happen to other people, but you somehow deserved it, and and that that is just that must be debilitating. It is, and we we seek out comfort, right? We and and what's known to us is what's comfortable. So even if you grew up with um an abusive parent and not necessarily abusive to you, but abusive to your other parent, whether that's verbally, physically, whatever, then that that's your comfort. And so even if you say, I'm never going to be in a relationship like that, oftentimes those are the people who are most likely to end up in an abusive verbally or physical relationship because it's what they know. And so even even with my journey of growth, like we, we say to people on every level, there's a new devil. So every, you know, you're never going to be completely whole and healed and never have the ebbs and flows. Things are going to sneak up and it's just about how quickly you recognize them and heal whatever it is that's coming up for you. So I had an instance recently where I had someone slandering me. And it comes back to like that being bullied on the playground. And I'm just like, you know, I'm back here again. And so I talk a lot about the drama cycle where there's essentially a perpetrator, a rescuer and a victim. And when we get stuck in this drama cycle, we have a tendency to play all three roles. There's just one that we go to most often. So as the coach, I'm sure you can guess that the rescuer is mine. So you know, I have this person who is, who's slandering me. And rather than doing what I know that I should do and just completely cut that person out of my life, I'm like, you know what, we can, for, for the sake of like the community and not making people choose, we can just work this out. So I'm going to do like this healing loving like prayer meditation for them every night which is totally me rescuing and then they say something slanderous against me again which puts me back in victim and I'm like well I don't like being in the victim role so then you know I get angry and I vent 
to a friend about that person or whatever, you know, or I don't even have to do anything to them to be a perpetrator. Like really everything starts in thought. So even me having a thought of like, like an angry thought against this person, that's still me perpetrating energetically. And then I go back to doing my loving healing prayer at night to rescue because I don't also don't like being the perpetrator. And I, I had this realization recently where I was like, what am I doing? Like, I just, you know, I, I just need to completely cut this person out. Like <laughs> there's, you know, the, this person's highly narcissistic. There's no point in me doing this. Like I, I've dealt with enough narcissists in my life to know better. And it just showed yeah. up in a completely different way where I thought that I was using my tools for good. And I was really, they were just keeping me in the drama cycle. So this stuff is always going to come up. It's just about how quickly we recognize it and then use the tools that we have to heal and to move on. Right. Because I mean, realistically, like we all, we all must be experiencing this at some level. There's obviously going to be more extreme cases where you, during that time of childhood, you might've suffered from abuse or you might've had more influence from your parents, whether it's been a divorce or like, you know, extremely, I don't know, they're very opinionated people in a negative direction or something. But I, I wonder, like, it's it's just, it's, it's not real life for a parent to never complain or, you know, be like, oh, my kid's around only positive all the time. Like, it, that's just not real, right? So we all are going to experience some of these limiting beliefs or fears, I guess. And it's just up to us to how we manage them. Is that fair to say? Or am I wrong? And do you think that we could all be perfect? <laughs> no, I mean, the the very essence of the human experience is to not be perfect. I think our job in this life is to heal our stuff. Um, because the other thing is, is that sometimes things are passed down to us in the womb. So if you think about it, like the mom and the baby are super connected. Yes. And what happens in the body is every time we have a thought that releases a hormone or a chemical in the body of that is related to that thought. And that hormone creates emotions that then create more of the thought of the same quality. So if I wake up in the morning and I'm like, I'm stressed out. And then that releases hormones relating to stress. So I, you know, I get hit with my fight or flight hormones, my adrenaline and my cortisol then that's going to make me feel stressed out, which is going to make me think more thoughts of being stressed. So when I was in the womb, and I, I didn't know this until much later when, when everything in Australia kind of went down, and I actually had a conversation with my mom about what was happening with my stepmom growing up. Um, my entire life, I've had this predominant belief of I'm fat, I'm ugly, and no one will want me. Like those three things have dominated my life. And I never had an idea where they came from. And my mom, I, I hadn't told my mom that, but we were talking and she said something about, you know, I should have left sooner. And she, I mean, she left when I was three months old, so she left pretty early, but she was like, I, you know, I should have left sooner. I knew better. Um, but when I was pregnant with you, he would tell me like, almost on a regular basis that I was fat, that I was ugly, and that no one would want me in my condition. And so my mom is having these thoughts put into her by someone that she loves, which is going into the unconscious mind, then she's getting hit with all these hormones 
around that self-deprecation, which because she's feeding me at that time, I'm getting hit with those hormones through her blood supply. And that is creating emotions in her and in me as, as a baby. And that, you know, those hormones were present while my brain and my nervous system was being developed. And I said, wait, he, he used to say what to you? And I like just about fell off my chair. And I said, you know, those are the three beliefs that have dominated my life. It doesn't matter how thin I've been. And I've, you know, I've had eating disorders and everything as well. It doesn't matter any, any of that. Those, you know, it doesn't matter how fit I've been. I've still had the, I'm fat, I'm ugly, and nobody will want me beliefs kind of until I started doing the healing work. And, and my therapist said, well, what, what the baby feels or what the mom feels is what the baby feels. And so some of our belief systems, you know, they're formed in the womb and some can even come from previous generations. So there's a newer study field of study called epigenetics, which is about how emotions get passed down and beliefs get passed down through our genetic, like through our DNA. So they've done a lot of studies on Jewish people who, um, Jewish people who had ancestors in the Holocaust in the concentration camps, and then Jewish people who did not. And they have very different belief systems about freedom and about what the world is because of whether or not they were in a concentration camp. So our to get back to your question, really our goal in this life is to heal that stuff and then to demonstrate for our kids how to heal their stuff. So it's not to say that, you know, we have to fake on, you know, paste on a fake smile and say to our kids, oh, everything's fine when it's not, because they also pick up on our energy. Right. When we are experiencing a negative emotion, our heart uh, has vibration, micro vibrations in between beats. And that actually can be picked up by other people. Our hearts are actually sensors. We can feel what other people. Yeah. So the, the Heart Math Institute does a lot of work in this, in that, you know, if, if people were to put you and I back to back, Hannah, and like completely blindfold and soundproof you, hook us both up to heart rate monitors, and then do something to really make me angry, my heart rate would change and yours would change to match mine. So it's not to say that, you know, we have to just say to our kids, oh, everything's fine, because they're going to, parents already do this, right? And that actually teaches them to stop listening to their gut, that we can't trust the feelings in our body, that we have to trust what people say, which is also dangerous. So what's better is if a kid comes home and the parent is super stressed and the kid says, what's wrong? It That's a teaching opportunity for the parent to show the kid how to manage stress, which most of society doesn't know how to do because they've never been taught it. So if the parent was to say, you know what, I had a really crazy day and I'm feeling a little bit stressed out right now. So why don't we sit down and talk about the five things that we're each really grateful for and really experience that gratitude and like experience that connection together. And that will allow me to let go of this stress or, you know what, I had a really stressful day and I'm going to look after me tonight by going to have a bath or going to yoga, or I'm going to go meditate or I'm going to go journal. Then it becomes a teaching opportunity rather than a, Hey, never listen to your gut. You have to make everyone else feel comfortable with your emotions kind of thing. So I would say rather than aiming for perfection, aim to just show people how to heal themselves by modeling it in you. Yeah. 
I agree. I mean, part of the reason I wanted to start this whole journey is because I really believe that when we're like when someone is their best self, so when they're like they're like they love themselves and they're their happiest, then they're better people for the world. So I think that that is very true to just be honest and continue to work on yourself. And that would make you the best teacher. Absolutely. And then, you know, it takes away this whole like guilt and shame that we feel around, well, they're always perfect. They never get angry or stressed out. And so then when I'm feeling these emotions that are natural as a human being to feel, you know, that means I'm not good enough or whatever it is. Like it it lets people know that we're all part of this human experience and that when we start to share our pain, we lighten the load and we can heal a whole lot faster. Wow. Well, it's, I mean, it's a little terrifying to hear how much the subconscious can absorb, to be honest, because it really makes you think about your environment, everything that you say, the, the thoughts that run through your head. And it's just so quick to walk past a mirror, you know, and be like, oh, I wish I could lose 10 pounds. But like that comes so quickly that you don't always have the chance to kind of stop and catch yourself. But am I correct in saying that the one positive thing about this is that we're able to say the, or because of how quickly it will absorb things, it will also, we can retrain it through positive thoughts and through, and through kind of, you know, switching the way that we think about things. Absolutely. So, you know, that you walk past the mirror and you have that, ugh, like that is just an entrenched pathway in the mind. And so we can, that's why a gratitude practice is so powerful, except a lot of people cheat, which I'll talk about in a second. But like the, the thought that dominates the day or the feeling that dominates the day is what we are bathing every cell in our body in, right? So every, like I said before, every time you have a thought, you're releasing hormones and that like showers your entire, every cell in your body in that emotion. And so we want to predominantly choose the gratitude and the grateful emotions over the negative ones because, like I said before, you get into that anxiety or that depressed or that stressed loop and it becomes really easy to stay there because you're pumping your body full of those hormones. Whereas if you can take a moment and it does take a moment of like conscious thought of like, I don't want to be in this right now, so I'm going to do something different and sit down and think of all the things, think of all the things that you have to be grateful for instead. And instead of just listing a gratitude practice, like it's, you know, uh, something on your to-do list. I see a lot of people doing this where they're like, oh, I haven't said what I was grateful for today. So I'm grateful I have a roof over my head. I'm grateful I have food in my stomach. I'm grateful I have clothes on my back. Okay, now I can go to bed. Like you're not actually experiencing gratitude, which means you're not bathing your body in those positive hormones. So it's the experiencing of gratitude, not just sitting there listing off things that you're grateful for. So there's kind of two ways that you can do the gratitude practice. In the moment when the thing is actually happening, you can feel grateful for it, or you can recall it at the end of the day and just make sure that you feel you take a moment to like really experience that gratitude and to hold on to that thought for a moment to feel those emotions flood your body. And then that will start to reprogram your brain. Wow. And when it comes to the whole, you know, 
especially in my, I think my age group and, and people in general, really, but I know specifically women, there's the very common thought of not being enough. And that could be, you know, fill in the blank for just about anything. What are your thoughts on things like affirmations and stuff to change that? Can that really seep into your subconscious mind? Should you um, be able to, you know, really go into it, like you said, with the gratitude practice, not just say the words and walk away, but if you take time to really like believe it, can that help you? Absolutely. So I still advocate for like healing the belief and in my mind, like combining the healing work with the affirmations gives you the most bang for your buck. If you just do the affirmations, can you rewire your brain? Absolutely. It's going to take a little bit longer. Like you just have to be aware of that. Um, so it's not like you just said, it's not about saying the words. <clears throat> our words are only 7% of our communication, which means that the words that we choose to say are that much more important because they only have 7% effect. So we want to make sure that we are maximizing that 7%, but it's the way that we say it as well. And so what I recommend to people is that they take a superhero pose. So like the Superman or the Wonder Woman, like feet shoulder width apart, hands on your hips, chest up, looking straight ahead, and then say with conviction, I am, and then whatever. The caveat, the caveat to this is that you have to be aware of what you're saying the rest of the day. So when I first met my now husband, um, he would say, so he's been given the diagnosis of ADD. So he's taken on this identity, which in his mind equals I equal unscattered. So anytime we say the word I or I am, whatever comes after it is what we're programming into ourself. If somebody else says something and we agree with them, so I was at a conference last week, I ran a conference last week, and somebody said something like, it's hard to make money. And I was like, I just shook my head and I was like, nope, I'm not agreeing to that. Because if I agree to that, then I'm telling my unconscious mind that it's hard to make money for me. And so we want to be careful what we say about ourselves throughout the day. So when I first met my now husband, he would say the affirmation of, I focus and I pay attention to detail once a day. Then as part of his, he's in sales. And so as part of his kind of sales script, he would make a joke at some point on the sales call about being easily distracted, having blue squirrel moments or whatever it was that came up for him. And so he would have at least 10 sales calls a day. So 10 times a day, he's making reference to him being unfocused and scattered. And so this is where affirmations go wrong for people is that once a day, they'll say something like, I am a millionaire. And they'll say it with conviction or, you know, I love myself. And they'll say it with conviction. And then, you know, if they're walking past a mirror 10 times and they're like, ugh, or they're making self-deprecating comments to people when they're out with friends or they're like, oh, I'm so broke right now. Even if you were broke like two seconds ago, you still have to talk right now in this second as though you're, you know, it's changing. I, I was broke and I'm doing things differently now. I'm committed to abundance in the future, whatever it is. Because when we say I am, the brain seeks out more of it. So when people are like, I'm broke, then they've just told their unconscious mind they want more broke and it will find it. So we have to be so careful 
if we are doing affirmations, what we say the rest of the day matches up to what we're saying with the affirmations. You can't just say affirmations and then go back to self-deprecating for the rest of the day. I put up a post on social media a couple months ago now about how like stop putting up self-deprecating memes because you may be doing it for a laugh from other people or joking around, except your unconscious mind doesn't take it as a joke. It takes it to be true. Yeah. And that just goes to show you how effortless we all live in kind of the self-deprecating worlds, whether it be through memes or, or jokes through with friends or using them as part of like your sales pitch. Like it's just, it's easy. It's what we know. Um, yeah. Let me ask you, what, do, what are your thoughts on the whole, like fake it till you make it kind of thing? Do you believe in being honest with yourself and saying something like, you know, I, and you know, you started with I'm broke and now it's, well, I'm trying to, you know, it's only a matter of time until I'm not broke or anything. Or would you say something like, no, I'm, I'm, I'm comfortable and just kind of wait until that point comes. Um, so for me, there's a difference between faking it and acting as if. And so I'm a big believer that your thoughts, your environment, the people that you surround yourself with have to reflect where you're going and not where you've been. Right. So right now I am a six figure business owner and I'm working on becoming a seven figure business earner. And so I am constantly upgrading my thoughts and the systems in my business and the energy that I allow in my space to match that of a seven figure business owner. Right. So if I have zero problem if somebody is super negative on social media all the time, either unfollowing them or unfriending them or whatever, because yeah. I just, I don't want to see that. And so I, um, I believe in talking about where you're going, not so much being fake in the moment. Right. right. So for me, like faking it till you make it is, when I've never had a coaching client before. And I'm like, yeah, I've helped all these people do all these things. Right. And like faking results. Whereas when I first started coaching, for example, I said, I need to practice. I'm going to give three people, three free sessions. That's nine sessions I have under my belt. So that when I start making sales, I have some testimonials and I have some social proof that, you know, things are, things are happening and things are changing. So I believe in not faking it and not being like, oh yeah, like I'm a seven figure business earner when I'm, when I'm not, I believe in acting like a seven figure business earner before I get there though. So it's kind of yeah. like, if you think about anybody who's ever won an Olympic gold medal, they don't start acting like an Olympic gold medalist when the medal goes around their neck. They've likely been doing it for years and years before that, you know, training their body treating their body like they're an Olympic gold medalist, um, training every day like they're an Olympic gold medalist, right? Like, you know, Michael Jordan didn't wait until he was the world's best basketball player to act like it. He started acting like it in high school when he got cut from his high school team and then went out and started shooting 100 straight free throws every night. And when he missed one, he would start back at 100. So for me, that's not faking it till you make it, but that's knowing where you want to go and acting as if right. you're on that path. Did that answer your question? Yeah, absolutely. That makes total sense. It's just, it's cause it's such a common 
phrase, you know, and it is something that I've been hearing more of in, in, in the self-help world. People will say it, I think, as a form of trying to up-level their lives. But it does make sense that, like, there's a difference between lying to yourself and being honest and saying, you know, I'm headed in this direction. What changes do I need to make to become that person? But still having that belief yeah. that it will happen. You still have to, you know, develop the belief in yourself that you you can achieve it. Yeah. And I think like my honest belief is that the whole fake it till you make it thing started with like confidence, right? Like pretend that you have confidence or act as if you have confidence, fake that you have confidence until you actually get confidence. But then it kind of got applied to a whole bunch of things and people kind of misconstrued that. Yeah. And so that that's where it gets people into trouble. Like if you're being fake, then people will know. Right. And and there's a difference between being fake and and acting as the person that you want to become. Right. Right. Where like fake is there's no authenticity to fake where me acting as the future seven figure business owner that I am just means that I'm managing my time better or that I'm delegating more. It doesn't mean that I authentically change who I am in any way. Right. That makes sense. Um, let me ask you a selfish question, just because I'm very curious about this um, through your experience with the subconscious mind. If you were working with someone and you were trying to help them, you know, rewrite some of their limiting beliefs, what is the way that you would suggest, obviously not to do so, because I know there's many steps, but I'm wondering about, you read often about writing things down, saying things out loud, saying things in a power pose, you know, taking 10 or 15 minutes to like, in visualize your what what it might be you have um, a method of of that kind of thing that you think is the most powerful um yeah so there's an nlp technique that we use where we go back to the first event where the belief was created and we reframe the perception on that event which then allows all the other events to change wow so and and then we deal with i mean a lot of the especially limiting beliefs that we have come from people in our lives, right? So I love my stepdad to death. We are super close. We talk every single day. Like if you didn't know he was my stepdad, you you wouldn't know that, you know, we weren't blood. In my mind growing up though, I had my biological dad who was never there when I was being abused. Now, of course, now I can look back and realize that my stepmom just chose those moments to abuse me when he wasn't there. Right. You know, she would wait until he went to work. But in my zero to seven year old mind, he just wasn't there. And he was meant to be the person to protect me. So I carried this belief for a really long time that there's two people in the world who are meant to unconditionally love me. And one of them not only didn't protect me from abuse, but then abandoned me and moved to the other side of Canada with her when I was... 10 or whatever it was, nine or 10. And um, so I felt like I had to constantly prove that I was good enough to be my stepdad's daughter. So I became like this ultimate perfectionist and had to be like the best at everything to prove that I was good enough for him. Now he had his own belief systems about, um, you know, his, his mom died quite young. My grandma died quite young. She actually committed suicide. And so he didn't want me to be emotionally weak 
And so he would tell everyone, he would brag about me to everybody else, but of course it's not to me. So I'm just looking for him to tell me that he loves me and is proud of me. And he wants me to be emotionally independent and strong and able to stand on my two feet. So he pushed me to be, you know, he, he would just push me to be better and to, to reach my full potential. So I'd come home and I'd get 98% on a test and I'd be super happy to tell him. And he'd be like, where's the other 2%? And it was a joke, but because I have this perception of I'm not good enough and I have to prove to you that I'm good enough to be your daughter, then it created all this animosity. Now we've had conversations about this since, but I was so angry at him growing up because he just wouldn't tell me that he loved me and was proud of me. He tells me all the time now, but of course I don't need (laughs) his validation because I validate myself. So a lot of our belief systems come from our perceptions of events with related to people and then they're further validated by that, right? So because I believed that I wasn't good enough growing up, every relationship that I got into, if and I remember this this time that in junior high, this really nice guy asked me out. And he's the kind of guy like that would treat me super well, blah, blah, blah. And so he asks me out and I'm like, you're just, you're too nice, right? And that's not what I'm used to that doesn't align with my belief systems. And we are programmed to always seek validation for what we believe to be true. So, because if, if our belief systems are wrong, then we are not safe. Right. So because of that, I like put this poor guy in the friend zone. I was like, Oh, you're too nice. Friend zone him. Meanwhile, there's this other guy over here who is rude to people and picks on people and you know he's essentially handing me a bouquet of red flags and I'm like oh (laughs) you're so awesome you're like the best person ever right completely justifying or ignoring all the red flag behavior so part of like when I work with somebody I work on their limiting beliefs last and we work with healing any emotions, negative emotions that they still have in them with a person. And then we come to the the limiting belief and rewire that first event so that everything else changes naturally through their life. And they see all the other events that kind of validated the not good enough or the not worthy, or I can't do it or whatever belief it is. It, that happens naturally. Wow. So, so that's my most preferred method. That's why you know, when people come to work with me, I only work with them for eight sessions. And then they have such a significant shift in their life that they don't need to keep coming to me. Right. And that goes back to what you were saying at the beginning about like, you know, taking out the root and not just, you know, making it look pretty for the time being, you're getting to the root of all the problems or the the beliefs, I should say. Don't want to. Absolutely. And yeah. And I mean, I've had business coaches tell me like, Oh, you know, that's not a great business model because then you have to keep finding new clients. And I'm like, well, I would rather do that than create codependency. Yeah, that's fair. So if somebody's looking for healing through, you know, for something like this, where do they start? Do they just, is it just acknowledging that there's something that they want to change is, or is it, you know, taking the time to acknowledge that they maybe did go through trauma or, or like, how do you often find that people can I don't know, begin this process? Um, So a lot of people who come to me, they don't even necessarily, like some people will just come to me and they're like, I'm just sick of procrastinating. And they don't necessarily know what the deeper root issues are. That's kind of my job. 
So a lot of people just kind of get sick and tired of being stuck in self-sabotage. They just, they're like, you know what? I've had enough of it. I'm, I'm so over doing this and I don't know how to fix it. And that's the point that they typically come to me. I'll help them with the rest of it. They just need to know that they're ready to make a change. That's good. I mean, I think that that would be really intimidating to have to try to figure it all out on your own and then be like, okay, now can you fix it? So that's good to know. You just need to be in a place where you're willing to make the change and get become a better version of yourself. Yeah. And it... Uh... I mean, you can go, you could wait, I guess, if you wanted to, to be like, I'm going to figure out exactly what this is. But even me, like I have a coach that I work with on it because I see things from my point of view and it's not always as easy, especially when you're first getting started to step out of your viewpoint and to see the problems that you've been having from another angle. Right. That makes sense. And so having, having kind of that, you being able to just empty out and say what you need to say or tell the story and having somebody else be able to kind of see from a bird's eye view what's going on makes it a whole lot easier to figure it out. Yeah, that could be said for a lot of things, you know, just removing yourself from the situation because we're just, it's, if it's your mind, you're fully invested in it and it's the thing that you believe the most, you know, nobody, it makes more sense yeah. for somebody like going back to what you said before, you, you might not have thought it was abuse, but anybody else around you is going to think so. And sometimes we need that like external reminder or influence from another person to be like, oh yeah, whoa, let me rethink this situation. That's yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, I mean, I could keep you here forever to go on and on about this stuff, but um, I'm sure you have so much to do. Um, I just am so thankful for for you for joining me today to be able to talk about this stuff. I think it's well without question it's incredibly fascinating but I also just think it's not talked about often enough like people don't understand or 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 know these things so thank you so much for teaching me some of these things my pleasure thank you for having me um is there anything you want to um share or say to anybody that might be listening um thank you um I would just say like to to give yourself a break like you're human it's okay. We, we, you know, we all go through this. We all have moments that we act how we wouldn't necessarily want to act or, you know, have things that we hold on to. So give yourself permission to be human and to just feel what you need to feel. That's amazing. And I think that's a perfect way to wrap it up because as interesting as it is to learn this stuff, it can be really intimidating to realize I mean, I'm 27. So for the last 20 years, I've been operating on something that I learned between the ages of three and seven or whatever. Like that's, that's incredibly overwhelming. But if you remember that, just to take a break, and that also that you are going to be able to rewire or relearn these, these things just the way that the same way that you learned them initially, or, or heal yourself from it. That's, that's a positive, positive end to it. Yes. Thank you so much for having me. I hope you guys enjoyed that as much as I did. I really now understand the incredible importance of the way that we speak to ourselves. I know I am incredibly guilty of being my own worst enemy and being mean to myself and so quickly judging things about myself that I wish I could change and instead I'm going to be 
or do my very best to be very mindful of the way that I think about myself and the things that I say to myself so that I can try to rewrite some of my beliefs. I hold a lot of thoughts about not being enough in a lot of areas and I really want to rewrite that. <laughs> and if any of you feel the same way, I hope that you will do the same. If you'd like to read more about Tiffany or to work with her, you can visit her website, bluelotusmind.com. I've also attached a link to the website and also to the, my Instagram. Her Instagram is at Tiffany Tombs, and her book is called Stop Being a Selfish Bitch, which is available on Amazon, or you can purchase it directly through her website, but I also included a link to that on my website and my Instagram if you guys wanted to ha have a little look, and I highly recommend it. And there you have it, another episode done. I hope you all have a wonderful couple of weeks, and just remember, be kind to yourselves, because what you say really does matter. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to learn more or to reach out, you can find us on Instagram at lovemepodcast, or visit our website, lovemepodcast.com. If you like what you heard in today's episode, please take a moment to rate and review on Apple Podcast, or you can subscribe from whichever streaming service you're listening from. New episodes are available every other Monday. Until then, I'll leave you with the wise words from the mother of all badasses, Jen Sincero. Love yourself while you've still got the chance.